Welcome back everyone. If the battle for reproductive rights, especially in the South, is far from over, and it's Tuesday, then this is the Delve. On Wednesday, October 6th, a federal judge temporarily blocked Texas's extreme and vindictive abortion ban, writing, Women have been unlawfully prevented from exercising control over their lives in ways that are protected by the Constitution. This was a victory for people with uteruses, a victory for bodily autonomy, a victory even for democracy. This victory was short-lived, as two days later, a U.S. appeals court uh, late on Friday, temporarily reinstated Texas's restrictive abortion law, which bars the procedure as early as six weeks into pregnancy and outsources enforcement of the ban to private citizens. A Mississippi case that could overturn Roe v. Wade is set to be heard by the Supreme Court in December, and with a conservative supermajority and known pro-life jurist on the court, <clears throat> Amy Coney Barrett, it's not looking good. We're following some breaking news now. The Supreme Court has just announced that it will hear the challenge to Mississippi's controversial abortion law on December 1st, and that could have big implications for abortion rights in this country. NBC News Justice correspondent Pete Williams joins us now. Uh, Pete, can you explain to us what the Mississippi law is and, and then what led the Supreme Court to decide to listen to arguments about this particular law? Sure. So the news here is when the court will hear the case, December 1st. That's what we've learned today. We knew some time ago that the Supreme Court was going to take this case and that it would be one of the biggest cases of the term. This is a law, the Gestational Age Act, it's called, in Mississippi, that was would ban abortions after basically 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, that was a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, and the state, in its most recent briefs to the Supreme Court, said the court should overturn Roe v. Wade. The question here is, can a state restrict, uh, basically ban abortion before viability, which is generally uh, considered to be much later. And that's the real essence of the challenge here. It really is a, a frontal challenge to Roe v. Wade. If the Supreme Court was to overturn Roe v. Wade, 11 states currently have trigger laws that would ban all abortions. But even before we would get to that part, it already doesn't look good in the South. State abortion restrictions have been chipping away at a woman's right to choose for decades, and the Hyde Amendment makes abortion inaccessible for millions of people across the country. Millions of women who cannot access their rights because of abortion restrictions are forced to endeavor on sometimes dangerous pregnancies. They are forced to endure the pain of pregnancy and labor, and sometimes the emotional hardship of putting a baby up for adoption. Some women and girls will die in childbirth, the U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate among developed nations. Others will be bankrupt by medical bills, and there's no guaranteed maternity leave in America. They'll lose wages. They'll get evicted. Some will be pressured to get married as teenagers, or to people they have no business marrying. Some will have no choice but to stay in abusive relationships. Some will be forced to co-parent with their rapists. Babies are wonderful. They are a joy when you want to have one. We here at the Delve say go for it, but no one should be forced to carry a pregnancy they don't want. It's inhumane. 
the human right of bodily autonomy should be protected by our government, not actively undermined. The 1973 Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade affirmed that access to safe legal abortion without undue burden is a constitutional right. Pregnant people have the right to make the decision of whether or not to carry a pregnancy to term. This is not a decision taken lightly. Women are not having abortions on a whim. It is a serious choice that women are fully equipped to make with their doctors. The majority of Americans identify as pro-choice, and 79% believe the Supreme Court should not overturn Roe v. Wade. 79%. Is there anything we agree on at that level? Nearly one in four American women will have an abortion by the time they are 45. You know someone who has had an abortion. You love someone who has had an abortion. Too often the conversation in America is the dichotomy of pro-life or pro-choice, those supporting abortion rights and those not. But the reality is much bigger, much more nuanced than this. One thing this binary doesn't address is the rights of parents, of poor women, of young women, and when we ban safe, legal abortion, we're not stopping abortion. Rather, we are condemning pregnant people to unsafe, unregulated, back-alley abortions that are dangerous and dehumanizing. If you don't want abortions to be wanted or necessary, then you should be advocating for sex ed in schools, for equitable access to contraceptives, paid maternity leave, universal health care, safe and secure public housing, survivor-centered, domestic violence interventions, for foster care, and adoption reform. To help us paint this larger picture, we wanted to highlight a leader in the reproductive justice movement, someone who could speak to the experience of women, mothers, and pregnant people, particularly in the South. Someone who could speak to the experiences of black women, of poor women, and of marginalized folk, specifically. Today I'm joined by Lori Betram Roberts, co-founder of the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund, and executive director of Yellowhammer Fund in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. She's a fierce advocate for reproductive rights and a champion for women and pregnant people across the South. Just a heads up, this interview contains some adult language and heartbreaking anecdotes of sexual assault, abortion, and domestic violence. We kept it light. Chatting with Lori is like speaking to a friend, but the content of this interview is very serious can be heavy at times. Please give a listen when you have the time and the space for this subject matter. Hi, how, how are you? I'm making it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, we're obviously about to talk about a topic that it's, very, it's difficult for me to really delve too deep. And it's such a heavy topic. And I'll never be pregnant. I'll never have to deal with the weight of some of these decisions that, that women go through. And so I brought a co-host who can help me, help me navigate and help the listeners navigate this extremely important topic of uh, reproductive health. Hi, Madison. Hello. Hello, Jalen. This is Madison on the production team. And I'm very excited to be talking with Lori today. In my research, looking for guests, when I found you, Lori, I was like, this is it. This is exactly who we want to talk to. So very excited. Hi, Lori. Hi, I'm excited to be here. I love podcasts. So like, yeah, 
I guess let's kick this off. Uh, Lori, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and, and where you grew up and, and all that good stuff. Ooh, let me try to make this really condensed because <laughs> it's a crazy, like it's a story that if I wrote a book, you would think it was fiction because it's <laughs> that absurd. So I was born in Minnesota. My dad is black. My mother is white. I was born in 1978. Duluth, Minnesota was not a very diverse place it's very very white in fact you may have heard of it uh mentioned in trump rallies he went there quite a bit during Mm. his election campaign he was constantly trying to recruit voters in the iron range of minnesota he failed yay so like that's where i grew up in a very very white area of minnesota and wisconsin every time i say it i start saying minnesota I grew up in a, in a very religiously fundamentalist family, like my mother's side of the family, specifically my grandparents were um, uh, evangelical fundamentalists. So I grew up like anti-choice, anti-gay marriage, anti-gay people, <laughs> anti-interracial marriage our church was, which was really oh, weird boy. because I was like sitting wow. right there. Um, <laughs> like, hi. I'm right here um and my mom's right here so what y'all trying to say yeah like i just grew up in a very repressive i would i would call it very cult like the um independent fundamentalist baptist church is very culty like i didn't own any pants until i was eight it was very repressive um mm. and then we left the church and i moved to indiana which was like we moved to a, a black area thankfully <laughs> i was very very happy about that went to high school there got pregnant at 16 got married it's a long story that i'll keep short left my husband at 18 we had three kids i did not excel at birth control for several reasons that include barriers and partners not being honest and i had Mm. seven kids by the time i was 24. (laughs) i experienced a lot of the same kind of reproductive oppression that I work against now. Um, And during that time, my attitudes on abortion really changed because I found myself needing an abortion and couldn't obtain one. And through that process, I just learned that, you know, like I wasn't different than other people, you know, Mm -hmm. like I wasn't better than them. I wasn't different than them. I was just in a different situation. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, empathy. (laughs) Um, And then I came to Mississippi to go to school in 2005 and i've been in the south ever since and now i do reproductive justice work so and that's broad-based reproductive justice work not just abortion funding i mean i'm most known for abortion funding in the south and working against abortion bans and working for abortion access but i do work around the right to parent keeping child protection services out of people's homes when there's no reason for them to be there helping people have access to food access to, you know, safe housing, keeping our communities safe, working on racial justice issues, birth justice, you know, LGBT rights issues. So we work on a bunch of issues across, you know, intersectional issues. That's on with Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund, which I co-founded and as well as Yellowhammer Fund, which I currently run. So can you explain for us what is reproductive justice and how is it different from the pro-choice movement and from abortion rights? Yeah, so I can really kind of sum that up in pro-choice 
is a reproductive rights framework. I mean, they're basically interchangeable, right? And reproductive rights is solely focused on abortion, birth control, and access to them, right? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily about equity. It's just, hey, everyone has access to these and okay, great, right? There's legal access, that's fine. There's no intersections involved. It's just focused on those things. And the the centering of that movement has always been white women and specifically Mm -hmm. a specific kind of white woman. So it's mostly been middle-class, you know, white women who have led that movement, been the center of that movement, their needs, their wants, you know, what is seen as acceptable for them. So one of the examples of how that's worked out is, you know, back in the 70s, right after Roe passed, when in Congress they were fighting to restrict access to federal funding for abortions, you know, white feminists didn't fight back very hard against that. They were Mm -hmm. like, well, it doesn't really matter. So what? Women will still have access to abortions. So what if, you know, Medicaid doesn't pay for it, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, black and brown women were out here saying, wait, it really does matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll be the ones disproportionately affected, right? And that's where you come to reproductive justice. And reproductive rights is grounded in constitutional, like a constitutional right framework right? It's a constitutional Mm. right for you to have an abortion. It's a constitutional right for you to have access to birth control, right? Whereas reproductive justice is rooted in a human rights framework, like a global human rights framework, right? Based on all these other global human rights frameworks. So reproductive justice, we believe in the right to parent, the right not to parent, the right Mm -hmm. to parent children you have in safe and secure communities, that are safe from state-sanctioned violence, safe from domestic violence, right? Like just that your basic needs are met and that you have the right to, you know, family planning, you have the right to sex education, you have the right to express yourself sexually and then not just be for procreation, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have the right to have all of those things honored. Those are human rights, not constitutional rights, human rights. Right, right. Period. And that's yeah. the difference. And then and, and the centering of reproductive justice has always been and remains Black, Indigenous, people of color, and specifically low-income mm-hmm. people of color, specifically women of color and femmes. Uh, I guess as we see it right now, do Black women have bodily autonomy? No, mm. <laughs> absolutely not. Like, mm. first of all, how can you have bodily autonomy in a country that disproportionately locks you up in prison, disproportionately tells you what you can and cannot have done for you medically, mm-hmm. disproportionately lets you die in childbirth, right? Yeah. Yep. Right? Where's your bodily autonomy? Right. Mm-hmm. Because let's be clear. The harshest abortion restrictions in the country are in the Southwest. And the Mm. majority of Black people in the country live where? Mm. In the Southwest. The most maternal mortality rates in the country are where? In the South. Mm. Right, right. And where do Black folks live? In the South. Right. We still disproportionately live in the South. So there, you know, 
Black women are, are not supported in their decisions to have or, or not to have children. There's no support there from the state at all. No. Mm. Like, here's the thing. I've always said this, um, and I said this even before I had the framework of, like, reproductive justice or the words, you know, like, the academic words mm. to, to frame this. But it's like Black women can't win, mm. right? When we choose to have kids, then society is in our ear talking about we're ruining the country. How dare we have all these kids? Why do you have mm-hmm. kids if you're poor? I mean, I'm speaking specifically about low-income Black women, whether you're married or not, mm. but especially if you're unmarried, right? Mm. Why, why are you, you know, and especially let, don't let our child get killed in state-sanctioned violence, right? By get killed by the police, mm. right? Oh, the shaming of those mothers, right? right? Yeah. So how dare they? But had that same woman had an abortion, then it, oh my goodness, you're committing black genocide. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How yeah. dare you? Mm. And then let me just also say, you can't really just voluntarily give up your child for adoption in the black community either. That's not no thing that we do. Okay. Mm. Because communities that have been scarred by genocidal acts, like having our children stolen from us, whether it was through boarding schools or through you know, child protection services, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. That's a scar and a generational trauma that sits in our communities. So asking us to voluntarily give up our children mm-hmm. is not something that's like, you know, rallied around. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Necessarily right. by families and certainly not to know white people. Mm-hmm. And I'm just being blunt. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. I read this quote from you in in an article that said, I jokingly like to say we are the only hood feminist-led abortion fund, by which I mean unapologetically hood and black. And I really loved that. So I just wanted to hear from you, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it really wasn't a joke. (laughs) I actually, um, (laughs) I want to actually just give a shout out to Nikki Kendall, who wrote the book Hood Feminism. It's not just a one-off, like there is actual, an actual critique in Lens called Hood Feminism and everyone right. should not get in her book. But when, we, when I say it, I think a lot like what Nikki Kendall says in her book, which we're, we're showing up for the folks that white feminists and, and, and even um, a lot of academic feminists, regardless of race, have left behind, right? Mm-hmm. Like we and I've, we put this out on social media before, you know, we here for the strippers, you know, the baby mamas, the, you know, I'm serious, like, you know, the mm-hmm. folks who are drug users, you know, the homeless folks, you know, like, uh, honestly, we here for the folks who got, you know, fat baby daddies, like mm-hmm. everybody who you think is not quote unquote appropriate for leadership, or you think isn't, is, you know, quote unquote too ghetto to volunteer, or be engaged, or you don't think is actually cares about a politics, guess what? They probably do, but you just never mm. ask them. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the most engaged people I ever worked with about politics was when I was a, was when I was a dancer, because I'm, I'm a former mm. sex worker. Like that really informs my work, right? Is that, you know, I used to sit in the club and talk politics with dancers all day. Right. So they could break down stuff better than pundits right 
I was going to say, because the politics plays out on their bodies, you know? Exactly. It's not something that's far away. It's something that they experience. Exactly. And for me, when I talk about hood feminism, I'm talking about like when we're out here working, this is something that my coworkers and I just talked about in our meeting today at Yellowhammer. When we're out here fighting and doing programming and stuff, it's not because we saw a news story and thought, oh, well, that'd be cool to do. Or we went to school and learned about oppression and we were like, oh, that sounds like a cool project. We could go save somebody in, you know, in some part of the <laughs> part of the country. We're fighting for our own lives. We're fighting mm. for our own people. We're fighting for our own sisters. We're fighting for our own kids. We're fighting for us. You know, we're fighting for our housing for ourselves and our neighbors. Like it's, mm-hmm. this is personal for us. Kind of like the way that the world kind of is approaching abortion and reproductive rights mm-hmm. today and the spot where we are right now. Do you think young people, the new voters, care about these issues in the same way as people a bit older, maybe like 30 and up? Do you think they care about abortion and abortion rights the same way that older generations do? Yes, I actually think they care more Mm. than people Hmm. give them credit for. If you look at who's leading the abortion funds Mm. and the abortion funding movement, it's a lot of young people. Oh, wow. Mm. And aside from me, everyone under me is under 31, Mm. like under 35. So like, you know, like my deputy director is 30 and everyone else is 30 and under. So younger folks are still passionate about, about these type of rights. Oh, goodness, yes. That's encouraging. So, I mean, and our board is young. And same for the Mississippi Fund. Like, the Mississippi Fund is made up of young people. In fact, so my my daughters co-founded the fund while they were teens. Oh, wow. They're now wow. in their 20s, and they've taken over the fund. And it's them and their friends that are really running the fund now. Wow. And they're all in their 20s. That's cool. And the other people that are helping them are all in their 30s. So I feel like... I feel like people think that they're not engaged. It's kind of like what I was saying earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Are people not engaged or are you just not talking to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Because if all you did was put out a Facebook invite to something, but you didn't engage with any of the communities you wanted to show up, mm-hmm. or you didn't have any credible people pushing that mes- message out to the other communities that are not your own bubble, well, of course you didn't get the people that you thought you wanted to get. You understand what I'm saying? I I do. I actually, I I think of like, you know, when anything related to abortion rights comes up and all the pundits, they're all like older people. Yep. And so (laughs) I was just, Madison and I were talking about this and I was like, do you think younger folks care about this? And I I think that's really encouraging that they do. And not only are they engaged, but they're leading it. Not only are they engaged, but like, I'm waiting for the media to move away from I mean, yes, the stories of abortions pre-Roe are important, Mm. but we have abortion storytellers all the way from people who are in their 70s and 80s, all the way to people who are teens. Mm. Right. So I'm talking about people who have gone through trainings to be prepared, I'm talking about emotionally, to tell their story. I Mm. mean, like people don't prep their story. Mm. It's just Mm. that like we make sure that they're prepared for like the blowback that they could get. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to tell like, it in a way that makes them feel safe. Exactly. And to train them in me- being media savvy so they know how to put things on the record, off the record, background, mm. that kind of stuff, right? And so, you know, We Testify has people that are already trained to do that. 
And most of them are, I mean, a lot of them are young. We have some in Mississippi, they're both in their twenties, right? I mean, I just think it's so interesting that I like, everyone I know in the movement is young. <laughs> I started to really care when I was confronted with it myself. Same. When, you know, and so I wonder too, when we talk about young people versus old people, maybe that's kind of the wrong distinction. It's really, has this confronted your life or is this still yeah. something kind of out there and theoretical? Well, there's also the power of knowing other people's abortion stories, mm. right? Like I think for my children, it was important for them to hear the fact that like I almost died in a Catholic hospital because they wouldn't give me an abortion while I was miscarrying. Like they just wouldn't finish my miscarriage because to them that was an abortion because there was a heartbeat, you know what I'm saying, in the embryo. A non-progressing pregnancy, right, was more important to them than just giving me a DNC. And right. they sent me home and I almost hemorrhaged to death. So like for my children, that's a story that sits with them right? Like, I think it's important for other teens to hear about why teenagers have abortions, right? And one of the yeah. things that I stress to people now about my daughter, who's been public about her abortion, she's been very public about the fact that like, those two abortions made her a good mom. Does that make sense? Like, if she had been a mom in her teens, I don't think she'd be as good of a mom as she is now. Right. Like, I can't, I couldn't have seen her as a mom at 15. Her mental health wasn't there. You know, our finances as a family wasn't there. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't that time. And there's no shame in saying, like, people would be, people would be down on her if she had had two kids as a, as a teenager, right? Mm -hmm. They would talk all kind of crap about her and our family, but yet they talk crap because she had two abortions and now is a stable and good parent. It right. goes back to right. that thing you're saying black women can't win right exactly mm. what is your relationship like with your kids oh all my kids still live with me all of them <laughs> yeah all and of there's them. seven right there's seven of them plus a grandbaby and i have a bonus kid and not just him like let me be clear his mom and his grandma are part of our family like mm. you know when when he became part of our family so did his mother and um and so did his grandma because for him to be okay they have to be okay mm -hmm. you know like we don't to me that's part of my work like you can't that's one of my critiques of the department of family and children like you can't just take a child and be like oh well we've taken the child now and they're okay and then separate mm -hmm. them from their family and their roots and say whatever happens to their family doesn't matter because mm -hmm. one day the kid's gonna wonder what happened to their family right do you, is that a ludicrous. part of reproductive justice, you think? Of course. Yeah. First of all, keeping families together is part of reproductive justice. Because mm -hmm. yes. you have the right to raise your children, right? You have the right to raise your biological children. Mm -hmm. Like his mom is still his mom to me. Uh huh. I'm not his mom, I'm Lori, right? If his mom wants to see him, we bring him to see him or see her, mm -hmm. right? She's just going through some stuff and she needs mm -hmm. some help. So in the pro-choice movement, as opposed to reproductive justice, I think there is really an emphasis on people not having a baby, right? Yep. Poor Very women so. who are expected to have an abortion because they're mm -hmm. poor. Teen moms expected to have an abortion because they are teens. 
And that's really part of what, a big part of what reproductive justice is. It's moving away from saying you need to have an abortion because you don't fit into our narrative of what a mother is and should be and says, you know, we trust you where you are, who you are to make a decision for your life. Exactly. I don't make decisions for people. I give people space to make decisions for themselves. I don't do any of that. I give them options and space to hold, you know, I hold space for people Mm -hmm. to make their own decisions. I hold space for people to tell their stories. um, And I hold their stories. Yeah. Um, I think that's some of the most important work that we do is like, yes, we fund things and yes, we give people money and all of that's great. And yes, that is life-saving and that is amazing. And honestly, I've said before that People will say you shouldn't throw money at a problem, but sometimes the best way to solve a problem is to throw money at it. So throw that fucking money at it. That's (laughs) literally, honestly, throw the money. But also it's important to hold space for people to listen to them, to empathize with them, to give them a a safe, confidential space to talk because mental health is crap in this country. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people (laughs) don't have anywhere to talk to people. You know, I have people who have held abortion stories for 20 and 30 years that randomly come up to me at places and tell me their story. When they find out what I do, I mean, I'm talking about, I'll be at places that I'm not doing anything related to abortion. Is that hard or, you know, like that people are kind of spilling out or emotionally on you? I think it would be harder for me if I hadn't went to school for human services. (laughs) Okay. Uh Thankfully. And so um, I was trained to have, you know, a way to let go of that have a way to process that stuff. Some of those stories sit with you longer than others. For me, a lot of times it's teens and young moms. And I think that's just because I was a young mom. Mm. And so it's, you know, in DV cases, a lot of times sit with me too when I'm on the call line. Cause I still do the call line for MRFF, even though I'm the ED of Yellowhammer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I occasionally work the call line and some of those stories hit with me. But overall it's, I don't mind. Like if, if just to, just so if any listeners are ever in Alabama and want to tell me a story, I will listen and it's okay. You're not harming me. <laughs> like I'm happy to sit and listen to people's stories. It's, I mean, like, I don't, I don't mind. If I, if I don't have the capacity to hear something, I'll let people know and tell them I need mm. to talk to them at another time. But overall, it, to me, it's my, it's my honor to be trusted that way. I was watching last night, Corey Bush, and Pamela Jalapal and Barbara Lee talk about their abortions on MSNBC. Mm. Mm. And I could just see how emotional Cori Bush was. I hadn't read her whole story till today. When I tell you as an abortion doula, I wanted to jump through the the, the screen and hug her. Mm. Like that's just like, to me, like that feeling is just what abortion doula work is like, right? It's like, you're just so intensely listening to folks and you're just ready to do whatever they need. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a caring profession. It's just a caring, you either are an abortion doula or a doula in general or yay. On the subject of abortion stories um, and, and sharing those stories, there was an article about you and your work on Mother Jones article that's called uh, When Choice is 221 Miles Away, The Nightmare of Getting an Abortion in the South. And it details the struggle of a young Mississippi woman who goes to find an abortion provider 
and she just really goes through hell. Um, Mm -hmm. She gets lured to one of these, quote, crisis pregnancy centers. She has promised funds pulled out from underneath her. She's driving state by state to find a clinic. She even had her tires slashed. Mm -hmm. Is this what women are going through? Is this like row America? Yeah. I mean, her, I think people thought, oh my goodness, that's really extreme. Like people aren't really going through that, but I was just telling someone the other day, like, I don't think people understand how much intimate partner violence and domestic violence impacts the work that we do. Mm. Like in the case of that person, there was more than that that went on between her Mm. and her former partner with him intimidating and or stalling her abortion that I can't divulge. But Mm. there are so many cases. I mean, not not by far, it's not all, but it's a good proportion that are somehow impacted by a form of domestic violence, either mm. financial exploitation or, you know, physical, emotional, a lot of, a lot of people who got pregnant via stealthing. So, mm. you know, their partner slipped the condom off or reproductive coercion in another way where their partner like stole their, you know, took their birth control pills and wouldn't give them back to them. You know, so like there's quite a bit of people trying to get someone pregnant, like to keep them around. One case I'll never forget was um, this fairly young mom came home, like she had told her partner that she didn't think she wanted to stay pregnant. And she came home and he had killed her daughter's dog. Oh, oh gosh. You know, there are partners that'll just like take the car and not let the person have the car. Like we have people that we literally have to almost like smuggle out of their houses, like come up with excuses, you know, like get their friends to to bring them and like come up with a whole elaborate story. Let me just throw this out there because I know this might may or may not be a question y'all have, but this is why self-managed abortion is so important. It's one of the reasons people always talk about, oh, okay, people can't get to clinics because of the distance or the cost or whatever. But there's also people who literally can't leave their house. Yeah. And not just because of domestic violence or location, but also disability. And all of those people deserve access to abortion. And so honestly, what you're talking about there is medical, like medication abortion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where you order it offline. That's why it's called self-managed. And one of the things right. that I keep stressing to people is, I don't know why the government or anti-choicers think if Roe falls, they're gonna get, they're gonna discourage Zoomers from ordering pills online mm. <laughs> to do an abortion. They're already ordering pills online. Like this is the generation that's been ordering. Like this right. is the whole generation that we raised on pills, literally. And the we, internet. <laughs> we raised them on pills and the internet. You think that they're scared to order some pills off the internet? No. Right. They're just not. Which doesn't like, make that necessarily safe. We want that to be no. safe. And right. that's why you have, but, that's why you have groups like Plan C who are vetting sites. Can you there tell are, more, talk more about that? Yeah. So Plan C is a, um, is a group that's like, you know, they put up sites that are, that they've already vetted are safe, you know, to use, to get, that have safe product, right. That mm-hmm. you can, you can um, buy from. And then of course there's aid access, which is a legitimate doctor from one of those countries like the Netherlands. And then mm. they they ship it from an Indian pharmacy that's legitimate. Okay. So there's a couple of there's a couple of groups that are trying to make sure that, you know, if you choose to do that, you do it safely. Right. 
And then so during COVID, they made those pills, those self at home abortion pills available through the mail. But is that then nationwide (laughs) or in a place like Mississippi that that doesn't count? It counts. But like there's also like more steps that then the clinic has to go through with the state. And then that depends on whether or not the clinic wants to do that. I don't think that the clinic in Mississippi has done that. I know that the clinic in Tuscaloosa that Yellowhammer owns has now has done it. And so now people can go to the clinic in Tuscaloosa with one visit, just their their informed consent visit, go Uh home and then their pills will be mailed to them if they live in Alabama, but they have to live in the state which is not what's happening with abortion in America in the South right now, right? People are moving Uh, across state lines. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like it's helpful for people, but here's how that helps though. It does help because if you can get people in Alabama or at last, at least a lot of the people in Alabama to one appointment, right? Cause you know that medical abortion is about 40% of people get medical abortion. If you Mm. can get those people down to one appointment, then that's, frees up your schedule for more people on that day that mm-hmm. you would have had to do those second appointments. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So like that is helpful. And then there are other, there's, there are some other workarounds, at least in Alabama, like some states have workarounds around informed consent where you can do it on the phone or you can get mailed a packet and that starts your 48 hours and then you only have to go once. But the thing about it with abortion care in the South or anywhere is you have to know all these rules. Right. Right. And you have to be working with a clinic that's going to tell you all these rules. And some clinics are really good at communicating the rules and some aren't. And yeah, it's just, it's a maze. Yeah. I mean, if you've got to smuggle someone out of their house, that's a lot easier to do once than it is to do twice. Exactly. And I mean, is it, is it every state in America that requires the 24 hour? Nope. It's not all the states. No. Nope. Okay. No, because New York doesn't do it. I know Cali doesn't do it. A lot of the more liberal states don't do it. It's not every state that doesn't pay with Medicaid. So it's federal mm-hmm. dollars that can't go to Medicaid. But if your state Medicaid dollars want to go for Medicaid, you can do it. So like Cali pays with Medicaid, pays, you know, Medicaid pays for it. New York mm. Medicaid pays for abortion. What's the other one? Like uh, Massachusetts does. And like if you're in one of those states and they also have Medicaid expansion, oh, you're pro- your abortion is probably paid for. But those, mm. those places still have abortion funds because guess what? you might have regular insurance and your regular insurance doesn't pay for abortion Mm -hmm. because that's the other thing lawmakers have worked really hard to do, right? Is get private insurers not to cover abortion. So if you have private insurance and you need abortion, you might still need money. And if you have a later term abortion, which are extremely expensive, you will probably need help unless you have a lot of money in savings. Right. So what you're talking about with federal funding or with state funding That has to do with the Hyde Amendment, right? Correct. Thanks for listening in. This is The Delve. I'll see you Tuesday.